we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kian, and here at the cabin in the woods, somewhere in the wilds of County Cork in Ireland, we investigate stories of the strange, always remaining critical, but hopefully never cynical. This episode, Mummy Fiction. Now, some of you listening might be uh, eagerly awaiting our polar horror episode, because only somebody like me would wait until you know, midsummer, which is, is fast approaching upon us uh, in order to release a polar horror episode. Well, it's being a little bit delayed because I'm getting ambitious. My plans for the episode are getting ambitious. I am in the process of commissioning, let's let's just say that, a couple of folk songs, uh, uh, two songs associated with uh, polar exploration and polar adventures, and I'll just leave it there. Uh, well-informed listeners might be able to guess what some of those are. Um, that episode actually is already in the can, but the f- friends and family who were involved in the recordings of these musical pieces, uh, some of them are perfectionists and professionals, and you know the whole thing is just taking a bit of time, but that's okay. I prefer it to be as good as it can be. In that episode, we are going to be talking about... Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's Captain of the Pole Star. We're going to be talking about Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness, a personal favourite of mine. And at long, long last, you'll get to hear me talking a little bit about the terror. My guest on that episode is Leanne from the Strange Ways blog. Like I said, it's already in the can. It's a great one, but, you know, just needs a little bit longer in the oven, so to speak. But until then, we have our Mummy Fiction episode, another perhaps more suitable episode for summer and a subject that I am very, very, very interested in, always have been. And boy, do I have the right person to talk to about it on this episode, but more on our guest in just a moment. So my beer for this episode, let's let's do first things first, craft beer for this episode as I'm sitting on the porch uh, close enough to midsummer as i said and of course those of us who are into folk horror know that weird things happen as we get closer to midsummer what's weird at the moment or rather not weird is that i'm enjoying a roaring ruby dark red ale this is from the wonderful company west cork brewing their beers come in these slightly odd shaped bottles which i find very aesthetically pleasing in fact all of their all of their branding and imagery is really on point and that's not the sort of thing that I say very often and they are from Baltimore. No, not that Baltimore, not Baltimore from the wire, but the little town of Baltimore in West Cork as suggested by the name. Roaring Ruby is top-notch and I recommend that you try it if you live anywhere where you might be able to get it. Now, few bits of chit-chat from friends of the show before we get into the interview. So, Eddie Guimont, frequent guest... Uh, reacted to our H.G. Wells episode and um, sent in some cool trivia, some stuff I didn't know, as always. Eddie's able to pull stuff out of I don't know where uh, and add to my knowledge and things that I didn't know before. So he he mentions that, um, well, in, in that episode, myself and my brother Donald talk uh, a lot about H.G. Wells' connections to other famous people from his time. So Eddie mentioned that um, uh, the... Uh, 
pioneer of rocketry, Robert Goddard, was actually a huge fan of H.G. Wells and um, sort of had his imagination set set alight as a youngster by, I believe, a radio edition of War of the Worlds. And I think I read that in um, in Carl Sagan's Cosmos when I was a kid. But uh, Eddie points out that not only was Goddard a, a fan of H.G. Wells, but he was a little bit obsessive on the subject of the knockoff, fake, unauthorized sequel novel, Thomas Edison Conquers the... Uh, what was that called? Ed- Ed- Edison's Conquest of Mars, sorry. Which it was was guy f- written by a fellow called Service, who, I mean, I'd always presumed must have been just some hack writer because, I mean, who who writes unauthorized knockoffs of H.G. Wells novels? Well, it turns out very distinguished um, scientists, astronomers and writers do. So Service uh, was quite the guy in his own right. And um, interestingly, uh, folks with uh, an interest in the history of the ancient aliens idea will probably know that aside from its ridiculous premise in in this novel where Thomas Edison builds a, a fleet of spaceships, you know, in in 1899 and sends them to defeat the martians on mars there is some early mentions of the idea of the martians coming to earth and helping humans to build um, uh, the sphinx amongst other ancient uh, constructions so again ideas here showing up very early that are later going to be very important elements of uh, what we now call fortiana and what we now recognize as the whole ancient aliens mythology so yeah yeah service very interesting guy altogether Listener Allison, who writes over at the Fingerpost blog, and that's all about Franklin and the Franklin Expedition. So we'll be talking about that next episode, of course. Um, she sent me something very interesting this week, which I didn't know about. So um, most of us have probably heard of the Highgate Vampire. That's a sort of a, uh, I suppose, a minor element, a minor example of hysteria that took place at Highgate Cemetery in London. And um, a lot of people came to believe that there was a vampire there. And still to this day, I believe there are blogs written by feuding vampire investigators who offer their own personal interpretations of exactly what went on. But this is a a similar case, but it involved only kids uh, in Glasgow, in Scotland, in 1954. And it's it's called the Gorbals Vampire. So this is an area of... This is an area of Glasgow where there is what's called a, a city of the dead or a, a mausoleum. It's a it's a very very large cemetery, and in the fifties, uh, huge numbers of school children, primary school children, came to believe that there was a vampire in this cemetery. And on one particular day after school, they all gathered there in huge numbers. And by the time a policeman showed up to see what was going on, there was reputedly two hundred kids roaming around this graveyard with pen knives and crucifixes and pencils and whatever else they had that was pointy uh, trying to run this vampire to earth and the story predictably enough was blamed on scary evil american comics uh, of the the sort of tales of the crypt type variety though i think this one was came from a was traced to an individual story from a comic book called dark mysteries i think which had a story called the vampire with the with the iron teeth and um in a fairly fairly predictable fashion there was a big moral outcry against these comics and there was calls for them to be banned and all sorts of things like that so i'd never heard of that one very interesting uh, thanks allison and she seems to have spotted a, a mural uh, upon a recent visit to glasgow uh, commemorating this particular event so that was fun, fun to see as well Cameron McCormack, who was on our recent episode about Bernard Huvelmans, the so-called father of cryptozoology, um, at least as of a couple of weeks ago when he sent me this, it was still in the midst of his Huvel, Huvel mania. 
And um, I meant to read this out last episode, but I didn't get around to it. So he was excited at the time for having just discovered a searchable online version of Huvelman's book in the wake of Sea Serpents. <laughs> and says, uh, damn, this would have been a good quote to share about the... Th this is one of Huvelman's subclasses of uh, Sea Serpents. The many-finned Celioscolopendra aliani, or aliens cetitian centipede because it is the same animal that the greek writer described before rondelet did so this last animal is known to the malagasy as lord of the sea and to the vietnamese as millipede and is probably therefore the prototype of the oriental dragon it could well also be that of the western dragon since it was no doubt what the jews described as the leviathan so yeah um thanks cameron St still discovering Interesting theories amongst some um, Huvelman's books there. And finally, yeah, I think we'll we'll get to introducing our guest. So my guest for this episode is Lauren from Gothic Bookworm. And wow, is she the right person to have on to talk about mummies, mummy curses, the whole idea of um, Egypt as a mysterious, spooky place full of curses and, and stuff like that. So uh, Lauren is a PhD student looking at Victorian travellers in Egypt and the treatment of ancient Egyptian mummies in the 19th century. She has a background in history, English and medical ethics, and loves gothic and horror fiction. She's on Instagram and Twitter as at Gothic Bookworm, and is additionally the creator of Mummy Mania Mondays. That's at Mummy Mania Mondays on Instagram, where she shares mummy facts, information, and gothic mummy fiction stories. Lauren is also the creator and editor of The Anatomy Shelf, a monthly newsletter bringing you the latest news about the body in literature and history. And I'll put links to all of her work in the show notes. So, with no further ado, let's get on with the episode. Uh, that sounds great. I'm a PhD student. I'm just finishing my first year and I'm looking at Victorian travellers in Egypt and also how the mummy was treated in the 19th century. Um, the Victorians weren't exactly um, ethical towards mummies, shall we say? <laughs> and even the tourist trade and uh, the antiquity trade and everything else, it just kind of amalgamates into this one great big um, mania called Egyptomania, um, which is what I'm looking at, and also mummy mania, and how the 19th century just kind of took off. Uh, with, with all this gothic fiction and all these travellers coming back and bringing things back. So, yeah, that's pretty much what I'm doing uh, at the moment. Um, and in my spare time, it's just, it's all about horror. It's all about gothic. It's anything to do with mummies and curses. I'm, I'm on it. <laughs> Wonderful. And, and um, some of your sort of online gothic and mummy related things, uh, which caught my eye, is just that, you know, how there is a certain canon of like kind of core Victorian texts that a lot of people are interested in. That's wonderful. I noticed you going a little deeper and it's like, oh, this person like has read all of the Haggard, even the, <laughs> even the really silly stuff <laughs> and, and all of that. So let's talk a bit about your, your online um, projects as well. Um, well, I've just launched, uh, this will be my third month um, of the Anatomy Shelf, which is a free monthly newsletter all about the body in literature and history. And the, the, ma the main um, kind of logo for that was taken from a Victorian anatomy book. And everything happened in the Victorian times and you, you get a hell of a lot of 
kind of different things happening all at once. You've got, I mean, you've got the Burke and Hare kind of murders and body snatching and things like that. You also have mummy parties, they called them, which weren't really a party. They were unwrapping mummies in front of people. And you even have public dissections and surgeries that people could go and see. So you kind of get this instance of the body really kind of coming together in that time and there are lots more kind of literature about that now and a lot more scholars and theorists doing work on that now and I just kind of want to get the word out there and in, ad in addition to that though you've got all these fantastic authors coming up with uh, body fiction and horror and the gothic and everything else uh, so I really really wanted to do that and um, and then I also have Mummy, Mummy Mania Mondays <laughs> it originally started off as this really cool kind of uh, every Monday I was just putting things up in my Instagram story and loads of people wanted, wanted to hear more which was fantastic so I created my own account for it so anything to do with mummy mania with mummies with uh, the art that you get out of it with the stories that you get out of it everything just kind of came together with that so that's pretty what I do and then I'm also a gothic bookworm because I am the gothic bookworm <laughs> I will happily admit that I love anything to do with the gothic I also really love horror and I love how the two intertwine with each other and again that kind of really took off in the 19th century and especially with the penny dreadfuls and everything else you just get this boom of literature back then which was I mean it's just fantastic e even the ones which aren't really brilliant stories you get a kick out of the writing or something that happens it's like yeah that's fine <laughs> wonderful yeah so I'll put links to all that stuff in the notes and um, I do check that stuff out because it's wonderful and it really caught my eye <laughs> and um I have a question. So like, you know, compared to other kind of classical monsters and monsters that became kind of canonized in, in the 20th century, I feel like the mummy is a bit is a bit left out in the cold. Like vampires are, are really sexy and they're infinitely malleable and zombies seem to come and go constantly. And I, I feel like both of those have been utilized to mean lots of different things. Like they seem to be people seem to be able to use them to address different social issues and stuff like that. Whereas I think maybe the reason why I love the mummy, but also the reason why it, it isn't as big as those monsters, is it very tied to a specific time and place, which is not just Egypt, but Egypt in the Victorian Edwardian imagination? Uh, it's such an interesting thing. I mean, I love me a vampire. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I think Dracula is amazing. A um, little bit archaic at times in the language. Could have done a lot without the equity and stuff, but it's it's immortalised as the, the one and only vampire. We've got so many vampire fictions and everything else. And the mummy, it's... Uh, the, the mummy has kind of like become westernised as this horror figure in a way, but it's become really... I don't want to say the word tacky, but it, it doesn't hold the same archetypal focus as some of the other canonized monsters. Um, I've been reading a book recently by Basil Glynn uh, called The Mummy on Screen, and he looks at this with great detail, and it's completely fascinating to me. Um, but even, it's one of those things where the mummy was supposed to, it wasn't supposed to be a creepy thing. This was an actual thing that happened, you know, people were mummified so that they, they could be immortalized in the image that they wanted to be and they could travel to the afterlife or the underworld and they, they would be there forever, that the mummy was a kind of rite of passage for the, for the ancient Egyptians, um, especially royal. Other people did get uh, mummified uh, later on, but it was mainly for, for people of high up in, in royalty. So you, you kind of have this huge historical background of, of the mummy, but 
it's very much turned into a very bizarre um kind of entity in itself how we see mummies on screen and in books and there's creepy figures that are doing bidding and running around slaughtering people are very different to what the ancient Egyptians meant so the mummy in itself is a, is a horror figure is totally westernized mm. and the Victorians I'm gonna say it they're definitely to blame for a lot of this <laughs> um I mean you, you've got the 1932 the mummy with boris karloff that was only 10 years after tutankhamun's tomb was discovered like these are huge huge things that happen in such a short space of time and leading up to that you've got the whole kind of concept of the mummy's curse in, in fictions and all our well-beloved authors are to blame <laughs> um so yeah it's it's very strange i i sometimes like to think of the mummy as a ghost in a way that, that from what we think about because kind of the mummies that become this very romanticized orientalist figure in the horror genre you kind of get the scenes of egypt coming out and you you get all these like ancient things happening and then all of a sudden boom on screen there's a resurrected mummy and the, from what the mummy was it has kind of become a ghost of its own past in in this sense it's it's got unfinished business because it's really ticked off with the victorians who are coming in and stealing all of its stuff um like this <laughs> this is my eternal resting place and you've just stolen all this um and it's it, i kind of feels like that they're kind of a weird specter rather than a, an iconic classified monster and even throughout all the other mummy films that you get there seems to be a hint of <laughs> Very, well I say a hint of westernization is all westernizing in that point but you get you know rather than a, a gloomy bat cave or you know where um Dracula's castle kind of all these iconic things it's oh there's, there's a little tomb but it's filled with gold but we're going to steal the mummy it's <laughs> it's just so strange <laughs> I think uh, one of the reasons I do enjoy it even I, I wonder if its effectiveness is more limited than other iconic monsters because mm. it is tied to this time and place um, and in, in terms of theme as well maybe it's not as, as applicable to as wide a range of interpretations the usual interpretation I've read is that you know it's a symptom of sort of colonial anxiety or whatnot but maybe that's why I like it because it's it's so on the nose it's such a Victorian thing it's such an imperialist thing and I'm fascinated by all that stuff and also maybe the lack of like a single core text the way Dracula has Frankenstein mm. has and we're going to explore like there's loads of great mummy fiction out there but there's no single one there's no single one that sort of fulfills that function as far as i know anyway um yeah i i totally agree i mean even th there were stories obviously before dracula was published you had carmilla um and also the same you you had florence marriott's blood of the vampire and but dracula does seem to be the core text of this and although there's lots of different ideas and scholars looking at how this came to be some people were thinking it was based on a historical figure other people think that it was just an amalgamation of as you say the victorians anxieties around you know imperialism and colonialism and the england needing to rule the world um <laughs> you kind of get this sort of really weird strange thing that's happening with mummies because they existed way before all this mm. they, they were a real uh thing that, that, that these are deceased people who've been immortalized and <laughs> we dug them up <laughs> um so yeah there isn't really a, a core thing the the other thing i think is uh, I, I was reading a very strange forum once uh, 
of people arguing if, if mummies were just lame zombies um which is problematic in itself and people are like yes but if a mummy bites you you're not going to turn into a mummy and I'm like, right okay we're down this road so even zombies have a a more effective way of, of coming onto the screen. I mean, every, I mean, I love a good zombie film, <laughs> I won't lie. And there's a ton that's come out this year. Um, but with mummies, it's it seems to be very, very bizarre that there is no one key kind of guidebook to what a vengeful mummy as a monster should be. We know what mummies are, we, we know why um, they were mummified. There's been some fantastic scholars on this. Uh, Selina, uh, Selima, if Ikram uh, does some fantastic work on death and burial in ancient Egypt. Um, her book is fantastic on that. But as a as a monster, we, yeah, we we don't have a, a core key text. Even the very first mummy fiction was not necessarily a, a monster in a way. It was um, Jane Jane Webb's uh, mummy. Um, the mummy, uh, a tale of the twenty second century. So that was eighteen twenty seven. And even that, that's, that doesn't classify it. You kind of just keep getting tidbits and a lot of which there are a lot of short stories out there majorly with mummies rather than feature length novels. Um, again, so you only get kind of little bits and bobs of what makes the mummy a monster until you start seeing it on screen. <laughs> when, when Lady Bird books, you know, Lady Bird books, they, they did, oh, yeah. did books, when they did their sort of like when I was a kid, you would find their little hardback editions of <laughs> illustrated versions of classics. And they, they, there's a version of Dracula and there's a version of The Lost World. And and there's one called The Mummy. And it's it's uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's The Mummy. So when mm. I was a kid, I thought that that was the, the equivalent of Frankenstein or Dracula. And I, I, I tracked it down recently because I was like, what? What are they using? Oh, wow. What is their archetypal The Mummy story? And of course, it's an adaptation of his Lot 249, which... Um, is like you say, it's a short story and not a true novel. But I, I think you can lay a lot. I think that's an important one in the formation of our mm. modern ideas about the tropes. Yes, definitely. And I mean, Conan Doyle is a fascinating character in himself. Um, I, uh, I, I love Lot 249. I do, because it's, I mean, it's a nightmare. Um, but in a good way, you're reading this about these 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 university students who are so intelligent and well, they, they claim they are. Um, and then obviously they, there's a mummy running around and thinking, oh, OK, well, but they don't know that because they totally believe in science and they totally believe it. And, you know, they're so sceptical. Um, and then obviously they realize that there is a mummy and this, but the weirdest thing about that, which I think is what makes it really interesting is the fact that they burn it in the end mm. as if the mummy is the issue, the mummy is yes. being controlled by one of the students and they just decide, Hey, do you know what? Mummy's the issue. We're going to stop this, uh, stop all these attacks from happening, burn the mummy. That's fine. And uh, and then and then the guy who um, Bellingham who who was controlling the mummy he just goes to Sudan like it's, uh, <laughs> as you do it's like all right I'll just you know forget that it was the mummy's fault it was him I'm gonna I'm gonna go now <laughs> and I, th I think that's the earliest um you know literary example of you know a mummy rising from the dead and you know lumbering around and causing chaos and that's 1894 I think that story is which is like it just it shows how late in the game. Um, a lot of these tropes really came about because you've got a fascination with Egypt all throughout the 20th century or the 19th century. But for most of that time, there's none of this stuff. There's none of these ideas about curses. There's nothing to be scared of. It's not a spooky Gothic thing that comes quite late in the game, isn't it? 
It does, and the figure of the mummy as well is is so is so late. I mean, there's one which I came across quite recently called The Mummy's Soul, which was uh, 1862, uh, anonymously written, and they, they're not quite sure who wrote it or why, but it's such a strange story because even in this, the, the, the main villain is a fly. It's hmm. not even a mummy. Okay, they find it in a tomb, but it's a fly. And then there's there's another one um, after 3000 years written by uh, Jane G Austin in 1868 that's about a necklace a cursed necklace and then even um, lost in a pyramid or the mummy's curse by Louisa May Alcott that, that that's a flower so mm. even you have a lot of things to do with mummies but there's not actually mummies as a main presence until you get to lot 249 really and I've as noticed a, as a, yeah I've noticed like in, in some of the earlier works where mummies do rise it's not as a horror thing. So the mm. that one, the is it the Jane Webb story? I read a, um, at least a chapter out. I had a chapter in a in a mm. collection, one of the old Peter Hinning connections, and it's like a lark. He rises yeah. like by some kind of Frankenstein-like scientific process, and then like goes around a futuristic London and has goofy adventures, and it's all <laughs> a bit silly. And then you've got um, you've got Edgar Allan Poe writing some words with the mummy which is kind of like social satire where a mummy comes back to life and pronounces unfavorably upon you know modern lifestyles and so like the either you've got the horror but it's only mummy adjacent or you've got the actual risen mummies but there's no horror and it's, yeah, it's, it's very late oh, when they come together it's so strange i mean some words with a mummy by poe it really makes me laugh because it starts off as what I, when I first read it, I didn't realise it was supposed to be satire. And I just thought, oh, another mummy fiction. And I started reading it and I'm like, oh, wow, they're going to resurrect this mummy. And this mummy's going to be really, really annoyed that they've disturbed his slumber and everything. But they're like, oh, well, we actually dissect you, but for science and for learning. And he's like, oh, do you know, I'm cool with that. Don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I get it. And I'm like, right, OK. And then, oh, he wrote another one called The Sphinx, which it's 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 about a giant moth again it's people are very reluctant to actually use mummies in in early fiction conan doyle went there though and i mean i love the scene in it where the, the mummy's chasing is it bellingham no not bellingham, bellingham yeah. sorry or... smith is it smith he's, he's he's chasing smith like through the field or something and it's just i mean i love some of the illustrations it's hilarious it's just like this vengeful mummy just like Rawr! um and yeah but i mean as you say, Doyle went there. He's very much the archetypal mm. um, person for this, and such a weird guy, anyway. <laughs> yeah, so I think some of my favorite ones, and probably the most kind of formative ones outside outside of Doyle's story, um, mm. stuff like uh, Pharaoh the Egyptian, which is what 1901, mm. something like that. I think so. Yeah, it's around that's, that time. It's that's very Guy late. Boothby, the guy who wrote yes. Doctor Nicola. And there's another one. There was obviously the Beetle, which we'll, we'll get to by Marsh. Love the Beetle. <laughs> they're they're both all part of this kind of um, what, what they used to call it invasion literature. The idea that like yeah. some like you know England is is on is on is is on the edge. They're nervous. You know, there's these big powers building up in 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 Central Europe. Everyone is convinced there's going to be a war. They're, you know, and and there's a lot of this weird proto science fiction, like the Battle of Dorking. Uh, oh, and even, yeah. <laughs> even War of the Worlds is, is described as fitting into this, where like there are these potential future invasions by foreign powers. And sometimes it's it just a straight military story, or sometimes mm. it is more science fictional. And you've got these mysterious creatures coming from abroad. The template, obviously, is Dracula, probably the best mm. known one today. But 
as is often remarked when it came out it was it was uh, outsold by <laughs> <laughs> another novel called uh, the beetle which i did i did read <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's really out there it it certainly is um again so so many kind of gothic motifs in that they've definitely made it a gothic novel but it it's got mummy in it, it's got beetles in it it's got egypt in it but it is solely a gothic novel it's mm. so funny and the themes that they do in it it's just you kind of have to read this some of the sentences like a couple of times like what Where? oh no that did happen <laughs> so that's the story where a like a kind of a malignant sorcerer of some some sort of undead sorcerer comes from egypt to wreak havoc in london and uh, is able to either is his true form is some kind of beetle or he's able to at least turn into one or give the give the image that he's turning into one and uh, you know like in Doyle's story there's a whole lot of orientalism going on it's like Egypt is always a a spooky mysterious dangerous place where like these ancient you know uh, cults are still doing their thing and you know heaven forbid that you know the flower of western manhood should ever go over there and get (laughs) get entangled and in fact I think that's one of the the main storylines behind the Beatle, isn't it that some English politician went there Mm. in his youth and was uh, hitting up the flesh pots of, of the East. <laughs> and, you know, as happens, he got captured by some cults who worship the beetle or, uh, and or Isis. He's a little fuzzy on that. And, um, mm. you know, this, this terrible thing has followed him back to, to England, which again, all these colonial ideas, like, you know, we go out into the world to, to spread our influence, but then, oh, what's coming back? What's going to come back to London? It's Dracula. It's the beetle. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's funny. And I mean, looking at, H. Ryder Haggard as well. He he changed his opinion on it. The, the Victorian society very much changed their their opinion on it towards the end of the 1800s. But you still had all these kind of fictions representing the parallels of 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 what they were thinking and how society was changing. And I mean Haggard, I think he's hilarious. He's he's one of these people. He's written some fantastic books. Um, and then in his autobiography, he, he's so he's gone to Egypt and everything. And in, in his autobiography, he's like, oh, I don't really agree with with um, tomb raiding or anything. So and he even compares it to what would happen if the kings and queens of Westminster in England were dug up and and they were in, dissected and, and things like that. But he very much fails to mention he was a huge part of that. He was a colonialist. He, he had a huge he, collection. He, he worked there. Like, it, oh my gosh, his collections were huge. He had rings, which he even put in his book. I mean, it's just totally avoided the question. Okay, let, let's, let's, let's talk about the... So, in, so Haggard <laughs> is one of my favourites, absolutely. Um, I, I actually, I can't... I can't stand King Solomon's Mines, but I love I love she. King Solomon's Mines is I think it was so it's one of those things that's a victim of its own success. It was so influential in setting a template that it just feels like really tropey now, and it feels tropey without the wrinkles that make. You know, we all tell stories that are versions of an old archetype, but it's it's the wrinkles that make them interesting. And for me, that one doesn't have a lot of them, but she really does. So there's mm. a, an element of she that's based on some of his own actual collection. Um, the ring, yeah. basically. So yeah. Tell us about his, that. Well, it, he he got a ring, um, and uh, it, it's an ancient Egyptian ring. I think I have some information here, but he. Um, in the very early publication of the book, which was a Longman's edition, he actually has the in like the the ring hieroglyphs like on the side of the book. Is that eighteen eighty seven? Was that she? That is. I think eighteen eighty six. Eighty six. Eighty six. Okay. Yeah. 
also I think King Solomon's Mines kind of has a kind of element of Indiana Jones to it rather than yeah just like like this isn't this isn't right um (laughs) so it's it's one of those things where you kind of get this you get this really strange thing that happened happens with she because even I'm not 100% sure what his message was with it, but even so, he still put a lot of his own ideas and, and experiences that happened in it as well. Um, I'm just trying to find where he talks about the his ring, his precious ring. Um, so, yeah, so she was published, um, it was called She, A History of Adventure, and it was in a graphic magazine, yeah, between 86 um, and 87, uh, but it did become a full novel in 87. Um, but apparently it's never been out of print, so mm. everyone thinks it's really popular. I personally love it. I first read mm. it, I was like, whoa, this is this is different stuff. Mm. Um, and so he, before he ventured to Egypt for the first time, he he was still fascinated with ancient Egypt and he collected loads of different antiquities one of which was a golden was it a cricklet circlet cricklet i don't know um but it's a basically a very small piece of jewelry and on it it had the uh, the scarab um and the hieroglyphics that read sutton sea ra so royal royal son of the sun royal son of the sun um so and these specific hieroglyphics feature in the in in the very early editions of of she and obviously the scarab uh, features in the novel and i just think that's really interesting that he he loved this thing so much he was like do you know what i'm going to put it in a book and he's he's so interesting with 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 what he does he, he also kind of when he did go to egypt he witnessed uh, bats coming out of tombs as well apparently and he put that scene in in cleopatra um which was written after he went to egypt uh, in 89 i think yeah so yeah he's 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 an interesting guy we'll just mention in case anyone doesn't know she is 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 about it's a bit like king solomon's minds it was his his first follow up to that success um, and it's again, it's about a a bunch of Englishmen going for, for adventures in sub-Saharan Africa and discovering a, a lost civilization ruled by this queen, she who must be obeyed, which is a turn of phrase people still use um, in Ireland and the UK sometimes. It, usually it's like when a, a rather old fashioned husband is kind of making a cheeky joke about his wife, he might call her <laughs> she who must be obeyed. That's the way I hear it anyway. Um, probably, I think they're probably remembering the the Hammer film from the nineteen sixties, mm. where which is I, which is fun. It's okay. It could have been better, but it could have been so much worse. Yeah. So is that is that the one where Ursula Andress? Yes. Does yeah. He's on the cover I mean, of my of my book. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's about this woman who has um, found some magical way to remain alive for hundreds or thousands of years, and I think I think she's originally Egyptian. Or, or, but she, she's got background in all of the great civilizations and Haggard apparently was obsessed with lineage and and tracing things and the ring if I recall in the book in the, the main one of the main characters Leo Vinci who's like a reincarnated version of her old lover he proves his lineage by showing her this ring which mm. um, Haggard pain, painstakingly tracks through <laughs> thousands <laughs> of years of history and all the different Whoa. civilizations as to how his family got to England and how he got the ring and um, but it's 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 just fascinating stuff, and it comes. You're you're talking about like these these artifacts that uh, you know he he either they were real or he made them real. So 
in the front of my book, there's a copy of the uh, the Shared of Amanertes, which is like, oh, yes, again, a plus centric <laughs> device, which allows the characters to find this hidden civilization. And it's covered with uh, uh, Greek and Roman and Latin and all these different um, scripts. And he apparently he got this made for him by some of his friends and kept it in his house. <laughs> so he's better known for do. sub-Saharan African sort of event, like what we think of yeah. as, you know, mid 19th century, like, you know, like uh, uh, Stanley and Livingston type stuff. But he was, he was interested in Egypt and he, did he, so I'm a little confused on the exact details of like the story where he did own a mummy himself during the writing of the novel. <laughs> Yeah, it's oh, th this story. I think it's fascinating because there's quite a few different bits and bobs that that don't quite add up, and I haven't got a hundred percent certain. Um, kind of, uh, uh, I haven't got a conclusion to it basically, but I think part of why I like this story is because we'll never a hundred percent know. I don't think so. It makes it interesting. So, um, there was a a, a mummy, um. And it was a mummy of Nesmin, who was a priest of, of fertility god uh, Min. And um, they lived in 30, 332 BC. Um, that's about as far as I've got 100% on this mummy. So Haggard's brother, Andrew Haggard, um, he basically, in a nutshell, he kind of took Nesmin, the, the mummy, back to, back to Haggard. And he was a military was like, oh. officer or something in Egypt, wasn't he? Yeah, I think he was a lieutenant colonel at this time, but I'm not 100%. It's worth I mentioning think. briefly for folks who are, who are not Victorianists. This is the period, this is the 1880s and 90s, the period when mm. Britain is effectively colonizing Egypt in all but name, or at least they are, they are controlling the government, um, you know, militarily. Boots, boots on the ground is 1882, I believe. <laughs> and, and some writers trace this development to this is why mummy fiction becomes darker and when the average Victorian person maybe becomes less or more uneasy with with the relationship with Egypt uh, just thought I'd mention that so he, a lot of the characters we'll talk about would have spent time in Egypt either through the military or they would have family in the military or at least they're reading about it every day because this is when you know the fighting against the Mahdi happens this is when Gordon dies at Khartoum and becomes a big public hero uh, this is when Kitchener you know, uh, brings breaks out the maximum guns uh, <laughs> against the dervishes. So this this stuff is Egypt is in the public press every day during these yeah, decades. It's it's a great point to make. It it sure is. It's it's probably the first time that it's been completely dominant of the media in every single which way because it's it's now becoming colonized um, by by the English, and it's. It's one of those periods in history which in such a short period of time so much happens and it has a knock-on effect and it's another wave of egyptomania that happens around this time everyone's you know egyptology is pretty much a, a studious discipline at this point um it's still relatively new though um so it's anything new exciting and shiny the victorians are all over it <laughs> so haggard's so... brother is, is is involved in military maneuvers in egypt and brings back a, a mummy <laughs> yeah he's just, he just thinks that's a cool souvenir he's like right I've, I'm, I've served my time in egypt and uh, do you know what i'm i'm gonna give this mummy to my really cool author brother henry Ryder haggard um, and so this was in 1886, and this is this is the really important part. It's the date that Haggard receives this mummy from his brother. So 
he basically has it in his house as you do it's a souvenir you've brought it back and and he's going to keep it in his house um but apparently this is where it gets strange because i haven't had a hundred percent on this there's stories which say that he only had it in his house for one night and apparently the mummy dust and the stench of this mummy was just so overwhelming that he wanted to get rid of it but other stories I've heard is that he actually kept it in his house for six weeks and in that time he wrote she so and then afterwards he wanted to get rid of it so I don't know it's it's such a strange it's such a strange story because I think both could be true there also could be a third option which you know might have turned up at the door and he just went I don't think so or he could have kept it for longer well, he I'm collected. not sure. I presume his his house um was full of like Egyptian stuff at this point I imagine him writing she surrounded oh, he, by he had so much stuff there's a brilliant interview um that he did um for the the Strand magazine I think um and uh, from the graphic as well. I think it's uh, the graphic volume 34, number 1887 um, on the 27th of November, 86. And he had so, so much stuff in his house. He had swords, he had animal carcasses. He, he had everything on the walls. His house was a, a cabinet of curiosities. Apparently that's the quote that the reporter used. So this wasn't a new thing. He didn't like have an empty house and all of a sudden a mummy shows up. He he would have welcomed it with open arms, I think. Another, so I've heard a very, I've read a version, and I'll mention at this point, um, Roger Luckhurst's book, *The Mummy's Curse*. If we haven't mentioned it already, um, I've got, I can't believe I didn't read this years ago. There's tons <laughs> of great stuff in this, um, and a lot of my information comes from here. Uh, he mentions that Haggard's brother wrote his own autobiography in which he's he kind of casually says oh I bought a mummy once and I left it with a famous relative who's a, a, a famous novelist no name mentioned and he kept it in his house for a while but then he had to get rid of it because his wife and his servants were saying that it was move walking around the house at night <laughs> I so, mean I so. <laughs> I've heard that as well I think I mean as well Roger Luckhurst literally wrote the book on this it, he's a fantastic scholar and I mean, I love that little extra bit about how it was his wife and servants, like as if Haggard's like, no, it wasn't. They're like, get rid of it. I don't want it. There's a lot <laughs> so, of storytelling yeah. with this stuff, isn't there? We have to remind ourselves, like some of these guys are professional storytellers. And I had a hard time trying to parse what was Haggard's attitude towards all this stuff, because it seems that like when there's a popular curse in the press, right? It happens in the 20s with Tutankhamun. It happened in the 1910s with the... Um, the, the British Museum cursed mummy case, which we will get to, uh, he, he pops up and usually says, no, 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 this is silly. You know, why are you promoting the superstition? But then he himself had been involved with spiritualism when he was much younger in London. Uh, and he knew people like Madame Guppy, who was a famous, famous American spiritualist. And he seemed to have believed in reincarnation. Like a lot of the stuff that shows up in his books, which is about, you know, past lives and reincarnation. He like sort of made that. He, he was a very old school conservative Christian, but he somehow made this fit with, which I guess is not that unusual. I mean, spiritualism was a form of Christianity, you know, a subset of, of Protestantism at the time. That's how they would have seen it anyway. You know, so I, I can't figure out, you know, is he credulous? Is he not? And that's why the Victorian era is such a weird time, because I'm always trying to figure out, like, what was the place of spiritualism and uh, you know because on the one hand you have all these important people who believe in it in higher places but and on the other hand they're always being called out in the papers and they're being laughed at and they're they have to deny it and it's such an interesting time <laughs> it it's brilliant it's one of those things where the um 
the Victorians, it's they kind of have a relationship with each other themselves and the whole world at this point. I mean, at, at this point, as I say in my research, nothing will ever shock me about them now. I mean, years ago, you could have said something like, oh, did you know that they used to unwrap mummies in front of a load of people? I'm like, what? But now it's like, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, Haggard was uh, a Christian and very into sp spirituality and everything else. And those themes do come up really prominent in his books. But the curses are a weird one um it's more especially ancient egyptian mythology which and the ancient egyptian religion it comes into his books as well so he's obviously studied it he knows kind of what he's talking about um although in his short story smith and the pharaohs that makes me laugh so much because he, he puts voices to the egyptian gods and how they would speak and it's it's no <laughs> what happens um, in smith and the pharaohs i haven't read that one Oh, it's 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 probably one of my favorite ones because it's so funny. So basically, in in a very brief nutshell, because I could talk about this for days, um, there is a, a, a student um, who goes into an art gallery. Uh, well, he goes into the museum and and it's he's gone to the arty bit where he sees a plaster cast of uh, a face, and he becomes obsessed with it and he tracks it down and the face is in Cairo and apparently it's uh, the the actual death mask face of uh, Queen Mami, I think, and he's absolutely obsessed with her. And one thing leads to another and he ends up finding a tomb, but there's nothing in the tomb, there's no mummy, uh, except uh, the mummy's hand. We have another hand story here. Yes, um, always hands. the hands. And he's obsessed with the hand and he wants the hand for himself. So he just kind of takes it and oh, it's like right okay this? sorry oh this is 19 this is 19 it's a late one 1912 oh. 1913 i think yeah 1912 1913 um so yeah this is a weird one because it, it's quite late in the game and i'm thinking okay well he's he's stolen a hand he's gonna get in deep trouble this isn't good um and basically what happens is so he's taken the hand and he goes back to the museum and he ends up falling asleep uh, because he, he, he's he been in there so long. He tries sleeping in a sarcophagus, not very comfy. So he tries sleeping in, in an ancient Egyptian boat. Like this this guy just did not look, <laughs> at the, look at the sign saying, please do not touch the artifacts. Like he just totally ignored that. So anyway, what happens is apparently um, he has like a vision, but we think the vision's real. And he has an apparition of all the ancient Egyptian gods uh, and all the pharaohs uh, that ever lived. So you've got Osiris. I think Cleopatra makes an appearance as well, as she does. And um, it's really interesting because they, they find out that he's hiding in the boat. And he ends up looking at this ghostly apparition of Queen Mami. And it's so bizarre because all of a sudden you think that she'd be a bit ticked off that he took a hand. Um, but it turns out that he is the reincarnation of her lover from years ago. And because he loves her so much, they're like, Do you know what? Take the hand because you love ancient Egypt so much. That is good for you. Don't you worry about that. And I really think this story was a redemption story for Haggard trying to justify his own horrendous <laughs> actions of stealing things and and acquiring things. I should say that's the that's the word the Victorians use. Yeah. He acquired things. Yeah. Um, no, he nicked them. Um, <laughs> so. Yeah, it's it's such an unusual story, and again, it's and and then all the ghostly figures fly away, and he doesn't know if it's um, 
if 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 he's if it's real or not or anything else but uh, there's a couple of the uh, jewelry makes an appearance always makes an appearance in, mm-hmm. in a haggard story again it's i mean it's free to read online at project gutenberg um it just type in smith and pharaohs there it's such a funny story but what gets about this it reads so differently that it's i think in a way the language is very ahead of its time it's hardly archaic he knows where to put a full stop and a comma looking at you stoker um so i love stoker but it's long-winded um so yeah it's it's such a strange little story and it's it's again so so bizarre the reason i ask about dates is is the emphasis on the mummy's hand because i'm trying to remember so like there's a mummy's hand element in the jewel of seven stars um queen terra's hand gets (laughs) dislocated and causes mayhem and we did two full episodes (laughs) on that once upon a time that's how much i love it but that's stoker by the way um and that's 1904 1903 close enough it was a long time ago we did the episode i'm trying to remember the so the the uh, the irish psychic count louis hamann who called himself cairo or cairo and uh, mm. he always told sp- stories about a mummy's hand. Like he had this mu- priestess mummy's hand in his house that caused mayhem. And he, he would see her ghost in the house. And he he was he was always inserting himself into these curse stories after the fact. Like after <laughs> after the Thomas Douglas Murray story became popular, he wrote a book saying, "Oh, I warned him not to go to Egypt." And after he d- he did the same thing with um with uh, with with Lord Carnarvon and, and Howard Carter years later. And it's like, dude, the timelines do not match. Like you could not. <laughs> Some of this stuff goes back to the 1860s. There's no way you were around. But he wrote a lot of books claiming a lot of weird stuff. I'm just wondering. If if when did he write about the the mummy's hand story? Was it after this or not? Anyway, yeah, I'm not sure on that. He seems. I mean, there's so many different versions. If there's a hand and it's a mummy's, he's he's gonna he's gonna fill it in, or he's gonna pretend to be there. He's gonna claim to be there and everything else. Um, it's so so many curse stories about the mummy's hand, though. I love the 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 Bruce Ingram one. Uh, yeah. Lockness mentions that i i mean it's one of those which technically could be believable because it's not too far out there so i'm, I'm a bit it's a bit obscure where the, the hand of this mummy came from um it's i think it's 1920s though i think that when this happened editing key in here there are in fact two ingram mummy curses there is the bruce ingram mummy curse and the walter ingram mummy curse they are unconnected i get them mixed up here Uh, i would have taken that little bit out but uh, it was too difficult to do so without disrupting the flow of the conversation just so you know uh, i'm incorrect here briefly Okay, so as I recall, Luckhurst kind of structures this one as one of two important stories, which he sees mm. as precursors to the the Tutankhamun curse with mm. with, with Lord Carnarvon. He sees that is like the culmination of this whole cultural thing. I, I think there's a reason why the 1999 Mummy film, which is great fun and has been <laughs> is warmly remembered by fans. I think there's a reason it's set in 1923 and not any other time in history. You know, that is the time where we most associate with this Egyptomania. It's a year after Tutankhamun. So uh, Locker sees that as the apex of this whole movement. But he says there are two important stories that set the scene for, for that mania. And one of them is this, uh, this Bruce Ingram story. So what, what is the story? I mean, I'm not quite sure where he gets the hand from. Some people have even said that 
Carter actually gave Ingram that the mummy hand himself, but I think sources on that are heavily influenced by the media and talk. And obviously at that time, everyone is literally talking about it. So their anonymous source could literally just be plucked out of thin air, maybe. I don't know. But anyway, Sir Bruce Ingram ends up getting a mummy's hand. Um, and he, uh, but there is a curse attached to that hand, apparently, uh, where if, if you take this hand, uh, you will have um, fire, water and pestilence. It's something along those lines. So he takes it home, uses it as a paperweight. And then I'm not quite sure which order it happens in. I think I think his house burns down first and then he rebuilds it. And then it floods. So you've got the fire and water and then he decides to get rid of the hand because he doesn't want to wait for the pestilence. So, yeah, it's again, I mean, I can understand the Victorian house catching fire and then I mean, and then and then and then flooding and things like that. So it could, it could just be a coincidence or something like that. But it's 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 a weird story, but it doesn't have like an apparition. It doesn't have a, a very ghostly um ominous voice of a mummy or anything it doesn't have a, a villainous fly or a bug or something which lots <laughs> of gothic fiction and curses um revolve around so yeah it's just uh i mean anyone who uses a hand as a paperweight's gonna <laughs> i mean something bad's gonna happen <laughs> um but yeah even the other guy though how do you pronounce his name is it kip Cairo or cairo I, I don't know i've never heard it spoken aloud yeah ne neither have i because yeah it's a nickname isn't it like did he give it him himself it's, he did yeah so he he's, yeah. he names it after <laughs> he, he's a hand reader he's a palm reader and mm -hmm. he calls this technique chiromancy c-h-e-i-r-o or chiromancy as you do as you um, do yeah and it's again a hand but he says it changes and and it, it's is, yeah. is walter ingram the guy who gets killed by an elephant or am I mixing up my curses? No, Walter Ingram, I think, did. Um, yeah, did or was it Bruce? Someone got trampled by an elephant, though, that shouldn't have been doing stuff like with mummies. <laughs> Again, a very colonial way to die, I suppose, in those days. Yeah, I mean, Let's... there was an ancient Egyptian curse which says about, you know, a hippo is going to eat you if you open the tomb. Ah. So that's, I mean, that's always made me laugh. That's one of my favorite <laughs> ones or something. It's like all of a sudden you open the tomb and a hippo is going to pop out from nowhere. But yeah. <laughs> I want to talk about the, the British Museum mummy because mm -hmm. it's one I've long been fascinated by. And I've got this, I've definitely gotten this story wrong many times over the years. And I even wrote articles for a, a website that shall go nameless maybe 10 or 12 years ago where I thought I figured this out and um, it turns out that the version I had got at the time was a, a kind of a false version put out there by um, Wallace Budge the guy who was the keeper of the Egyptian rooms at the British Museum at the time who for some reason well on the, on the one hand he wanted to dampen belief in this curse but on the other hand his explanation for it was also full of nonsense and really muddy muddies the waters for uh, what you know what really happened and who who this happened to and I had versions of this book when I was very young from the old world's greatest ghosts world's greatest jinxes those kind of books most of which were taken from like old British red top newspapers <laughs> I found out years later and um, so like I've heard, I've read different versions of this uh, over the years and there are many different versions of it do you have a mm. version of this one that you know well I, that 
makes a good story. I have the most, I have the most recent version Let's of the timeline that. of this case. So again, it might not be correct. And I don't think we'll ever know the correctness of, of this story, but it's a great story, isn't it? It's brilliant. So there was, um, it's nicknamed the unlucky mummy. And I love that it's it's as if it's a coincidence that all these things happen and it's not necessarily a curse. That's typical Victorian skepticism there. It's like, oh, you're just, just unlucky. <laughs> <laughs> um, so and uh, it's actually a cursed mummy case or the, the correct term is um, the mummy board. It, it's a mummy board. It's 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 a coffin lid of uh, the priestess Amun-Ra. Um, and it's 3,000 years old, and it was discovered in 1868, I think, in Dar el-Bahi in Egypt. I'm not sure how you pronounce that, but that's kind of where its origin was. Um, and so it, it's this, the unlucky mummy is a mummy board. So apparently, <laughs> this is the timeline that I've got, and Lord knows if it's right. Um, but they, uh, there were four Oxford graduates which were tasked with picking her up and two out of four of them died <laughs> apparently immediately who knows um one of the other ones was thomas douglas murray we've mentioned him before and i i loved uh, you chatting about him in the jeweler seven stars episode as well like just <laughs> just it's crazy guy <laughs> um so apparently he had his arm amputated after accidentally shooting himself um hunting quail in cairo so he was number three of the oxford graduates um and then number four was a guy called arthur wheeler who apparently lost his fortune twice <laughs> um so that's what happened um then a photographer died after photographing it a porter died after carrying it and a translator shot himself after looking at the hieroglyphics of it. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. Um, Murray, who um, was a member of the Ghost Club, apparently he told these stories, each individual one as if he was there um, until he was 70 uh, when he died. Um, also, weird fact I didn't know, he introduced the Pekingese dog breed to the Western That's right, world. That's right, yeah. <laughs> like, I love that. I love just seeing this guy who was, you know, talking about ghost stories surrounded by, like, these little dogs. <laughs> I love that. Um, that's really funny. So, and then and then it gets to the British Museum. But as we know, the story doesn't quite stop there. So I'll, I'll say that this next section is kind of... Um, like just just yeah that the, i think it's false <laughs> um it's it's supposedly falsified but i'm, I'm gonna tell it anyway because it's a good story so apparently it was then sold to america and it just so happened to be on the ship the titanic <laughs> um i'd love to know the story of if it was on that ship how they got it back it was just floating or something i don't i don't know um but apparently it survived the titanic and it got all the way to america but then America decided they didn't want it. So it traveled back on the RMS Empress Island. Uh, but unfortunately, that ship collided uh, collided with the SS Stordad uh, on the St. Lawrence River in Quebec. And the casualties were more than a thousand people. And then it was apparently sold to um, a German who gifted it to Kaiser Wilhelm. <laughs> um, and then it just ended up back at the British Museum. The, yeah i mean it's still there you can go and see it <laughs> it's 
it's it's so weird though like apparently it never actually went to america it never went on the titanic and it only left the british museum in 1990 when it went on some exhibition so all of that is false i mean if you're gonna tell a story if you're gonna tell a lie like at least a make it consistent b make it believable um but i just love that they went there as if someone just went yep sunk the titanic (laughs) so i i've been Desperately trying to untangle this, and here's here's what I think, right? Yeah. Uh, um, Thomas Douglas Murray was real, that is for sure. He was mm-hmm. a man. He was a society man. The, the, the reason I, I'm being like, we have to establish what's real and what's not is it's all different <laughs> versions of the story. The ones I read when I was a kid take place in 1910, mm-hmm. whereas most of them take place in the 1860s. And I, I think the reason they get shuffled forward to 1910 is to fit in with the Titanic and the First World War and all that stuff. But like, so he was real. He definitely went to Egypt in the 1860s uh, as, and, and, and bought, was with a group of people who bought a mummy. And that was a popular thing for, you know, well-connected upper-class gentlemen interested in Egyptology to do. And Wheeler probably existed, though we're not sure mm. exactly which, you know, there are several candidates for who he might have been. There was a mummy uh, and Murray owned it at some point and it was eventually sold to the British Museum by somebody connected to Wheeler, possibly his sister, in about 1889. So we know that much. And then it gets into the British Museum, and then stories start to go around because a journalist prints like a spooky, you know, like elements of of the story you told (laughs) in about 1904, and that's Robinson, uh, Bertrand Fletcher Robinson, friend of Arthur Conan Doyle, guy who helps come up with the the story for The Hound of the Baskervilles later. So he's a well-connected guy too, and his story goes viral as it was. And then... W.T. Steed gets involved. Uh, do you say Stead or Steed? I'm not. I say Stead, but I'm probably wrong. <laughs> I've, I, I've never heard it said aloud, just, but he's, he's an important no. Victorian journalist. He publishes a version of the story as well. So, uh, I think circa the Pearson's magazine version comes out in, I think, 1909, mm-hmm. by which point Fletcher has died. Fletcher Robinson has died and is then part of the curse because obviously he died because he wrote about the curse. And then... And then Steed, you know, the Pearson's magazine publishes it. And so the, the picture you, the painted picture you see of this usually is that cover, the, mm. uh, the Pearson's cover. Yeah. And, and then shortly <laughs> after that, I think um, W.T. Stead or Steed publishes a version of it as well. And he's a big deal. He's, he's a huge, and it met massive yeah. spiritualist as well. Um, unfortunately, the, the waters get muddied here because Ernest Wallace Budge steps in, the British Museum guy, and he says... No, no, no. Uh, what happened was those two guys were friends, Stead and um, Murray, and they they saw they heard a different story about a haunted mummy in someone's house in London. And then when mm-hmm. they saw this mummy case, and he calls it Amon Ra, he calls it the priestess of Amon Ra, but I, I don't think the British Museum call it that anymore. That was something he came up with. Mm-hmm. And he says they were in the museum as visitors and they saw it and they said, <laughs> let's make up a story about that. Mm. And we know that they asked him to could they hold a seance in the British Museum because the letters exist? So they were like, hey, Wallace Budge, can we have seances in your Egyptian rooms? And he was like, no, I, I need to stop all this oogie-boogie stuff being associated with my museum. Thank you very much. Um, and so, so that really confuses the story. That's, the, one, that's mm. the version I thought, that they had made that up because that's what Ernest Wallace Budge said. But what's weird about it is that he knew both these guys pretty well. Mm. Uh, he certainly knew Thomas Douglas Murray, and he knew that yeah. Thomas Douglas Murray had owned the, the mummy case. And why he wanted to kind of separate him from the story I have, later on, I have no idea. But then it gets worse because W.T. Uh, Steed is, of course, probably the most famous person who goes down on the Titanic in 1912. Yeah. 
like and i mean the, just that little tidbit there. Yeah, the story goes that he was he was on deck having a you know a lavish meal and he was telling the story of the haunted mummy case uh, and he stretched the story out past the midnight hour which is apparently a no-no and you know mm-hmm. the gods were angry and struck down the ship and then after he died the fact that he was on the ship gets mixed up with the fact that oh people start saying no the mummy case was on the ship and that's how mm-hmm. the mummy case gets onto the titanic and my understanding is that the later stuff certainly with the first world war and maybe the empress of ireland as well comes from none other than margaret murray who we love <laughs> on this show a famous egyptologist lest we forget and also mm-hmm. creator of the witch cult in western europe she apparently invents that element of the story as some sort of troll to like you know catch people out for being credulous and there's a quote that I heard, which is that Ernest, Ernest Wallace Budge apparently secretly said, never print this in my lifetime, but the mummy case caused the war, which <laughs> I love it. I love it. So it's very convoluted. And I've done my best to figure out what is for sure is that uh, I'm getting my names mixed up now. Douglas Murray owned the mummy case and he did lose his arm in a shooting accident. And he was the president of the Ghost Club, which mm. was... And he did tell stories about this at the Ghost Club. That much is for sure. Yes, I, th- I think that. And as it said, he was very passionate about these stories until the day he died. I mean, I love that. What gets me, though, I mean, he's very clever because any other witness to these events, he just kills them off in his stories. It's like, right, there were f- there were four of us, okay? It's like, oh, well, can we speak to them? No, two of them died. Another one's too sad. He lost his fortune. Like, no. And then, oh, a f- photographer, like, took pictures. Of it. He died. Um, you know, can't interview him. You know, it's uh, I, I just love that. It just kills people. <laughs> Can we briefly mention the Ghost Club and maybe the SPR? I think we neglect to explain this anywhere, but the SPR are, of course, the Society for Psychical Research. They're both founded in... in can you believe this? They're both founded in 1882, the same year Britain goes into mm-hmm. Egypt. So it's, they're both intimately yeah. associated with this stuff. It's, oh, it's, I mean, it was just a club that everyone was a part of, wasn't it? It was, it was the club to be a part of this. This was what you wanted to be. You wanted to go there. You wanted to tell your stories. As long as they were spooky, you got an invitation. So how you had to tell one true there? ghost, one true ghost story a year to keep your membership as a brother ghost. <laughs> I love that. Oh, I love it. It's like, oh, I mean, everyone was a part of that club. Everyone. You've got Henry Ryder Haggard. You've yeah. got. Uh, Conan Doyle, who he shows up as, as, as a guest at he least shows one. Up as yeah. a guest. If if they weren't yeah. members, they were they were guests because it was very secret and there was outrage when you know accidentally uh, uh, it, it, there was a leak to the press about who some of the members were and there was outrage again. This whole thing of all these important people are involved and they're true believers. They're pretty much mostly spiritualists, but they don't want it to be known who mm. they are publicly. Very interesting. It, it's so secretive. I mean, I love the fact that Conan Doyle was a guest there because. Uh, a guest there because um, he he spent his life writing about Sherlock Holmes, who was the most skeptical, most informative person. And I love that he grew up to hate him in the end. I think that's hilarious. The press must have loved him. Do you think? Because like every time one of these stories gets big, both again, both the the curse mummy case and later the curse of Tutankhamun, the press go to Arthur Conan Doyle to say, "Oh, we'll get a good soundbite out of him." It's like you're famous. You're associated yeah. with rationalism, but you'll always give us a, a spooky anecdote. And he's always he's like, yep, it was elementals every time. 
<laughs> every single time i love that he was the authority on this like anything let's go to let's go to conan doyle like and with any curses not just egyptian and and just anything you know he was a huge believer in the crossingly fairies and was totally 100 like that happened and tilton can't move yep it was cursed that happened yeah. and uh i just think it's so funny that he, he he's just basically the complete opposite of sherlock Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> I have one last famous Ghost Club member, which is uh, incredibly after Thomas Douglas Murray dies, he's, his membership is replaced by W.B. Yeats. <laughs> Actually shouldn't surprise anyone who knows anything about W.B. Yeats, but uh, in, in Ireland where he's, he's an, you know, most of the talk about him is focused on him as an important literary figure, an important nationalist figure, uh, an important man of history. But he was, he was well into the, into the occult. It's, I mean, that does not surprise me. <laughs> um, of course he's there. Of course he is. There's, yeah. Right. <laughs> Wouldn't let's be a talk, club without him. <laughs> let's talk about um, mummy, mummy movies. So, Ooh. yeah, you have, you have an interest. You've sent me on an interesting list here of ones you want to talk about. So let's yeah, get stuck so, in. Oh, I love mummy movies. I think they're the best. Even the, even the bad ones, I think they're brilliant. Um, I made a couple of notes on my kind of not necessarily favorite ones but the best ones that are kind of out there so um you've got the original 1932 one with Karloff um playing Imhotep um who has become immortalized as this vengeful being when in actual fact he was actually a really a really cool guy um he um he was an architect they think he designed the Doze pyramid um stuff like that but now he's become this uh hellish being that's uh, now been resurrected to walk the earth um the the interesting one that i really like is uh, the 1959 one um which is the mm. hammer horror one and i think this was supposed to be i mean ha hammer horror had done dracula by that point it was a really kind of credible kind of directorship for for what they were expecting and it was really huge and they had a great cast it was christopher lee and peter cushing um and i just it's you kind of watch it and I couldn't help but feel slightly disappointed by it because they really tried to up the ante on it and I just don't think it worked but I still I still enjoy it I think it's great and you don't have Imhotep you're Karis instead uh, which uh, Christopher Lee play, plays the mummy um, but what I do really love about this film in a way and maybe it's why it didn't 100% work as an Egyptian horror was because they brought so much classic gothic horror motifs into it as they did with with dracula um you know you've, you've got the gothic motifs you've got someone you know who, who's claiming to to now have gone insane um by this you've got sleepwalking you've got a little bit of romance as well um and you've also got the swampy marsh and all the fog coming in and a mummy like rising out of the swamp it's very very gothic very westernized victorian gothic isn't mm. it <laughs> and a lot, a lot of it most of it takes place in the english countryside with yeah moors and you know these isolated mansions and uh, an insane asylum as i recall yeah it's, um, it's set in the 1890s i think yeah it's again really it's definitely classed classes victorian um i love the terrible set that they have at the beginning of the tomb i just love that so much it's just like they really did try um this is brilliant and but they even make the burial of, of um the mummy in it um so it's the tomb of ananka i think ananka yeah um, ananka yeah and um 
obviously Christopher Lee is, is the mummy that's supposed to be protective uh, and everything else. And then he ends up, uh, it turns out that he was in love with her and everything else. Um, again, so it's, it's, um, it's really, yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting film, but it's definitely got kind of that gothic side of it. The, the other one that's intrigued me, I really do not like this film, <laughs> um, but it was really interesting, was the most recent The Mummy in 2017 because they did something different with it. So it's even got the, uh, you have Tom Cruise going in and he, they found this mummy and obviously it, it, it comes back to life. <laughs> um, and... It's also got Russell Crowe in it, who plays Henry Jekyll, and he is Jekyll and Hyde, which is obviously based on the 1886 Robert Louis Stevenson story, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So they are bringing in more elements. And the other thing I like it is that they've totally based it off um, some really kind of core Egyptology. Mm. Um, so... You, you've got um, the mummy in this is uh, Sophia Butella. I think that's how how you pronounce her name um, as Ahmet Ahmanet, um, which is loosely kind of based on Imhotep, um, but also Amunet, uh, which is uh, called the Hidden One um, in ancient Egyptian. Um, and the, the the cult of her was basically worshipped through the last dynasty, so the Ptolemaic. Um, kingdom in 30 BC so that they've done their homework on that so she's she's this force but equally Tom Cruise manages to absorb um, the power and the gods Ugh. set I mean I, lo I love I love I love the original ancient Egyptian the content names of Horus and Set I absolutely love that story I think it's brilliant um, it's it's such an interesting part of ancient Egyptian mythology and I, I do like appreciate what they've tried to do it's terrible but at least they're trying yeah. um but i mean the ones that i love the most 100 are the 1999 the mummy and the mummy returns i mean one of the only film sequels which is just as good as the original brendan fraser rachel weiss john hannah Ar arnold yeah. boslu just just that whole cast yeah. was just amazing and i loved it and i will forgive them for desecrating imhotep's name because i mean he did a really good job of that and even that was supposed to be the remake of the 1932 one but again as you say they've based it in that time very specifically and i love mm -hmm. the mummy returns with the whole british museum like yeah. malarkey that's that's just genius <laughs> yeah i think i think it's a rare example of well maybe not rare but it's it's a great example of you know they weren't afraid to tinker with the original material and they weren't mm -hmm. afraid to like right we'll take the idea but actually it's a completely different genre it's it's not this reverential treatment of a horror creaky mm -hmm. horror classic it's no we're just going to have fun it's kind of going to be like indiana jones you know but the the adventure stuff works the, the horror elements i saw it when i was young enough and i i found it creepy enough when they are trying to be actually creepy and mm -hmm. the humor works and I, there's a lot of goodwill towards that film you know, I think it was seen as a bit silly for years, but there's definitely a kind of a bit of a culture revival around it now. And um... oh, definitely. And people sometimes like have been asked, oh, um, you know, you're really into this. So maybe you don't like the most. I love the mummy films. <laughs> they're amazing. They're probably my favorite films. Just, you know, it rainy day. You put them on. It's like, here we go again. They're brilliant. I mean, as a kid, I was terrified of scarab beetles or any beetles because I thought they were going to eat me alive. <laughs> but I mean, you know, that that's a good element of it. And I love how it's it's the curse of the home die, isn't it? I, lo I love how they just like start wrapping them up in bandages in bandages and i'm like do you know what mummification was so simple back then 
um so yeah it's not historically accurate at all but it's absolutely brilliant and it brings in the book of the dead i just i just love that which is not an actual book which you know its name's really bad for that but i just love again the ancient mythology around it but as you said that they've definitely tweaked it um the original material they're playing with it's not trying to be 100% this is what fact was this is what we're taking from it this is how we're portraying it it's do you know what we got a couple of things that we want to run with we're just going to go with them it's like um, a, it's yeah. like a pop culture stew of uh, all the well it's, it's like a stew of all of the pop culture elements of things that people think they know about you know egypt and curses and ancient history and colonial times all put into one silly silly mess and you know obviously there are there are things that aren't great going on there and that's fine and if people want to object to that stuff i totally get it but you know i can i can i can take something for a bit of fun sometimes as well and especially when it's done with such i don't know there's just a lot of fun and goodwill in it and uh, i i really enjoy it it's it's stood up stands up to me big time I think it's brilliant. I mean, part of my work is looking at um, travel narratives and, and gothic mummy fiction from a post-colonial perspective. And you can kind of see how society changed and changed the minds on that from way at the beginning to way at the end. And even now we are talking more about, you know, that there's a, there's a huge uh, conversation about um, reparations of objects and things like that. And I just think that these movies existed in kind of a different world to that a little bit. Um, people can just appreciate them for what they are. But if you want to go deeper, go deeper. There's so much context around there. It's it's brilliant. It's so good. Um, so that's what I like about it. It doesn't kind of matter what perspective you're looking at it, it from. It does something for you. It, there, there will always be things in there for it. Everything is placed like that for a reason. I love it. It's great. <laughs> I'm just looking over our list and there's one canonical mummy story we, we meant to talk about but haven't and even though we're a bit out of time I think we should we should we should go there just in case any any completists are listening and that is Conan Doyle's other great contribution to the to the mummy mythos so we talked about the uh the lot 249 but we need to talk about the uh the very dangerous to pronounce uh, ring of Thoth. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say this now, I will pronounce it wrong. <laughs> um, I went into that story when I first read it and I was expecting something totally different, but I love it. I think it's fantastic because it's not the curse story that you think it's going to be. At the end of the day, it's a romance. And just that that ending, oh, I, lo I love the ending of it. I mean, spoiler alert, it's tragic, but it's also really nice. <laughs> what, what happens in this story? I think it's 1890. It's earlier yeah. than, so earlier than got... the La 249. Yeah, so it's, so it, 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 I don't know how to pronounce his name, but it's Mr. John Van Sittart Smith. I'm going to call him Smith. Um, so Smith <laughs> is an Egyptology student and he finds himself uh, in the Louvre um and this is yeah this is slightly after lot 249 isn't it oh is maybe, maybe later? or is it earlier oh no it is earlier it's 1890 yeah so he hasn't even written his mummy curse story yet and i think this was really interesting i always do think it's later because it seems a lot more well developed hmm. um but yeah so basically he he goes to the louvre museum and uh the louvre it's very well known that they have a fantastic collection of mummies there um and he's kind of uh, run with that in this story and he meets an individual there uh, called, who reveals himself to be a saucer 
And I don't know if that's a play on words with sorcerer. I mean, totally wouldn't do that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and they walk out, he, find, he finds sorcerer kind of um, talking to, to this mummy, uh, the mummy of Atma, I think it, I think it is. And um, basically it's revealed that he was totally in love uh, with Atma. And you start thinking, wait a minute, how old is this guy? Turns out he's very, very old. <laughs> and he, he uh, discovered the elixir of immortality. And apparently he lived thousands of years ago in ancient Egypt and his fiance was this mummy, Atma. And uh, he took the elixir and he's now living forever. But before he could give the elixir to Atma, she unfortunately became ill and died. And he had to try and find a way to reverse the curse of immortality. And he finally found it um, with the ring of Thoth, 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 I don't know, <laughs> um, with that ring. And so he's come to the Louvre so we can finally be reunited with his true love and reverse his own immortality for it. And it's just the last, it's the kind of last sentence which really struck me. Um, it was just, um not not necessarily the very very last sentence but it's the one where it's it's he, he smith isn't 100 percent sure if this whole story is real or not i mean it could just be a guy who's broken into a museum and starts making up a story but he's really trying to take off with the mummy um so yeah that 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 could be it but it's it's um yeah that the, the so when, when the people come in to clean out the rooms in the morning, it says uh, they found one of the attendants lying dead upon the floor with his arms around one of the mummies. So close was his embrace that it was only with the utmost difficulty that they were separated. So it's Aww. a love story. Aww. And it's like he was clinging onto her from beyond the grave. And then you're like, yeah, it's, it's so strange from Doyle. It's just, it is a strange story from Doyle. This, this is not like him. <laughs> it's bizarre. Yeah. I suppose in the captain of the pole star, there's um, mm. there's a kind of a love element, but yeah, he yeah. didn't didn't write women very often or with a lot of nuance. Oh, yeah, Sherlock, well, Sherlockians the are getting angry. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's interesting if if we take the the mum the nineteen thirty two mummy the film as like mm. pretty much the cultural lodestone, like everything that we think we know about this stuff. You know, it comes from there originally. And in those two stories, Arthur Conan Doyle provides, I think, the seeds for that film where uh, in Lot 249, you've got the concept of the reincarnated mummy who shuffles mm -hmm. around and does bad things, uh, you know, at the behest of a sorcerer. And in The Ring of Thoth, you've got the, the ancient undying love element, which is a huge part of the film. Um, and if I recall correctly, it's not correct me on this now it's not really a supernatural element like the elixir he comes up with it's more like some kind of secret hidden ancient science or at least it's yeah. written that way yeah that's kind of what i got from it it's not like he suddenly like um you know had to had to go to a sorcerer and create this mm. elixir it's just uh, found it yeah. <laughs> um, which again makes me think of uh, the, the jewel of seven stars where it's like supernatural things are happening but it's implied that maybe the ancient egyptians knew something about radiation or some other technology yeah. that we didn't i mean i i love the jewel of seven stars again because that i mean that that's absolutely bonkers and that's why i love it it's i mean go back and listen to those two part episodes because they are absolutely brilliant and i love the context behind it and everything um i do think that perhaps conan doyle as well with the ring with uh the ring of thoth he 
<laughs> he he builds on that archetypal mummy in the westernized version because even in uh, the the one that wasn't a, a remake or anything even in the 1959 uh, one uh, christopher lee he sees uh, isabel who looks like the love of his life the mummy and so he's like oh, okay well you know i'll just i'll, I'll just I'll just die. And that, that reincarnation <laughs> idea goes right through to the 1999 mummy as well. Mm. Or at least, I, I can't remember, Does it? maybe it doesn't show up until the second one, but they they, they get there where, you know. It, yeah, they, they try and fail in the first one-ish. Um, doesn't kind of work. She's kind of half half resurrected. It's like, oof, that's, uh, that was a creepy scene as a kid. Um, but yeah, and again, when, when he's sucking the life out of other people, it's literally taking life from others in order to regain your own. It's such an interesting concept i love it and I, I also love that even in even in those films they still they still go on with the cat elements i just love everyone's perception of cats in these things it's brilliant jewel of seven stars it's got a cat yeah, <laughs> the mummy's yeah. got a cat like oh it's brilliant <laughs> there's a story early in the roger luckers book where he's talking about uh, arthur weigel why arthur weigel who is um See if I get this right now. He was a journalist who was present, at, I think, at the opening of the tomb. And he kind of, I think he's the one who inadvertently contributed to the, the mummy's curse by saying, you know, <laughs> if uh, he was pissed off about something and he was angry at uh, Lord Carnarvon. And he said, like, well, if he goes into the tomb with that attitude, you know, he'll be dead in a month. <laughs> and then he actually does die in a month. And <laughs> Arthur Weigel is like, I, I didn't mean that, honestly. But he, he tells a story about earlier on where he's um working with, Carnarvon and they find a mummified cat which is apparently one of Carnarvon's <laughs> first big finds and he tells this story about like keeping the cat in his house and like it turns his head to look at him and you've got this like mummified no face cat looking at you and uh, I found that very spooky oh that's very spooky I mean oh that whole curse story with Tutankhamun hilarious like it's just brilliant and I never got 100% sure on what Howard Carter thought of it either because even he kind of wrote his own version of events with his friend Percy White in Pearson's um, about his canary uh, that supposedly died when they opened it and obviously the Carnarvon's dog died when when Carnarvon died and his dog was called Susie and it howled and then just fell dead and oh it's just I mean it's, it's a great story. <laughs> the, the degree to which like both Car Carter and Carnarvon might have been believers in in these ideas or, or spiritualism in general is really muddied because um, I, I believe for years that they were both at least somewhat interested because you can you can get documentaries from the 70s of Carnarvon's son I think the sixth earl who was like well up for saying mm. oh yeah yeah dad was mad into spiritualism he was having he was having seances non-stop at Highclere Castle which that's um Downton Abbey isn't it is is actually yeah, it yeah is. it's actually his yeah. castle and uh, he would say that, oh, sometimes Car like Carter was very skeptical in public to the press about all this stuff. Mm. Now, I actually tend to believe that he was in reality as well. But there's a story that, oh, he was turning up at these seances as well. <laughs> and everybody was doing it, which I mean, like, not crazy for Victorian times. Like, I wouldn't no. have, I wouldn't be surprised if Carnarvon was some kind of spiritualist, but he didn't want to talk about it publicly. But anyway, his son showed up in documentaries all throughout the 70s, like peddling that version of it. I'm I'm hoping that they do something big next year because it'll be the hundred anniversary of them finding Tutankhamun, and I think they'll be doing something. Um, I really want to go there and visit. They they supposedly have a really good Egyptian exhibition there anyway, so 
here's how for it in these next you know what's yeah, gonna happen so. in 100 years after what's what's you know is it curse gonna come alive again i don't know <laughs> <laughs> well we better wrap things up out of all this stuff we've talked about like books and films and stuff and um, if someone was you know ca casually interested but maybe looking to dig a bit deeper would you what would you recommend people check out is there a either a history book or one of the primary sources that we talked about um, I mean, there's some great resources online. Um, there is uh, the Arthur Conan Doyle Encyclopedia, where you can read Lot 249 and The Ring of Thor for free. There's also Lowe's on Project Gutenberg. Um, you've got all, all the Haggard um, content on there as well. Uh, the interesting thing as well, I'd say, have a look on Visual Haggard. Uh, it's a great uh, website, visualhaggard.org, I think, which has all of the original illustrations from Haggard's book. And just some some of them are fantastic. They're really cool to look at. Um, additionally, Roger Luckhurst's book, he literally wrote the book on it. Um, I think he's a really cool guy anyway. He wrote uh, another book um, about The Shining um <laughs> and the, the mazes in there it's brilliant um so yeah and just uh the the british museum they have uh, an online kind of um uh, viewer of their gallery so you could go online right now and physically virtually walk through um and try and find the the unlucky mummy <laughs> you might have a hard time i went to see it in, in in person a couple of years ago and there's nothing you know, there's no sign on it saying this is the one. It's just it's just there amongst a whole lot of other ones. And it's not the biggest one or the shiniest. And it's yeah, you have to go looking for you have to know what you're looking for. Yeah, you really have to look for it. I kind of love that about it because it's they could have really gone to town on that and made it a feature. And I love that they didn't. I really do. Um <laughs> I mean, early travellers as well. Um, a lot of the British Museum, their, their things are from early travellers. Um, Giovanni uh, Battista Belzoni, he was tasked by Henry Salt, who was the consul in Egypt, to bring back. It's, they, they didn't know who it was at that point, uh, but it's a huge uh, Ramesses bust um, in the British Museum. So they called it the Younger Memnon. Um, because they didn't know it was Ramesses, because uh, hieroglyphics weren't translated until 1822 by Champollion. Um, so yeah, so that he was tasked with bringing that back, and a load of other antiquities as well. It's it's a great it's a great place to go and see ancient Egypt without going to Egypt. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, finally, um, where we'll say once again, where can people find your work online? Oh, um, so if you go on Instagram, I am at Gothic Bookworm or at Mummy Mania Mondays. I'm also on Twitter at Gothic Bookworm and Mummy Mania Facts. Um, and you can also go on the anatomyshelf.substack.com and that's where you can sign up for my newsletter for free. And I've got some really exciting reviews coming up on mummies as well. <laughs> yeah, well worth doing, folks. And um, I personally recommend all that stuff. And I've, I've discovered some really great stuff and I found some wonderful illustrations from your from your from your work as well so lauren thank you so much this has been fantastic oh thank you so much for inviting me on it's been wonderful thank you and that's it for this episode folks as always you can support the show with a totally no strings attached sort of deal over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide atlantic we love a drink of the black stuff around here. And on top of that, you can always get in touch with us, reach out, let us know what you think of episodes, or uh, give us some ideas for new fun stuff to talk about or guests that we could have on. On Twitter, we are at Strange Ireland, and on Instagram, we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. So until next time, as always, stay safe and thanks for listening.
We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.